0: Well, as you're seated, let me welcome you. My name is Kenan Vaughn. <clears throat> got the privilege of being one of the pastors and elders here at Harvest Church and uh, preaching God's Word this morning. We will be continuing in our series in First Peter chapter 1, verse 22 through the end of the chapter, verse 25. So if you want to go ahead and make your way to First Peter, that would be great. And I just also want to remind you, uh, uh, well, first of all, welcome all of you that are here and on live stream. It is really nice to see uh, just slowly but surely that we are safely able to regather for worship, and that is really a blessing. So great to see so many of you here today, and, and those that are live streaming, uh, we certainly miss you and are glad you're with us. So we're in the Lenten season, just as kind of a little uh, reminder, we've been talking about it and our call to worship, and um, I like what Jamie said in the video uh, we sent out a couple weeks ago, which was to participate in this expectation, in this Anticipation in this worshipful season of remembering what Christ has done for us. Christ uh, crucified, dead, buried, raised from the dead. So we are taking these candles every Sunday. We're blowing one out. On Good Friday, we will have a um, a service remembering um, the uh, crucifixion of Christ, and the last light will be blown out, and it will be dark. And the idea is that it seemed as if darkness covered the earth. The Son of God was turned over to the hands of men and crucified and he was dead and he was buried. And it really brings weight and hope to Easter morning when we gather to worship on the third day and all the lights are lit signifying what's true light has conquered darkness he is risen from the grave. And so we are celebrating symbolically but we're also participating and a 40-day, a oftentimes Lent uh, throughout church history has been thought of as a time to fast, to give up something in light of what Christ gave up for us. And so we just participate. Instead of merely a Friday to a Sunday, we take a season on our calendar, and we really do something to remind ourselves to meditate on the truth of Easter, uh, the truth of Good Friday and Easter, the, the death, crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ. And so you can do that. Many times, uh, that's what folks do. Jamie had a, um, a word a couple weeks ago to maybe add something to your calendar. Instead of subtracting something, maybe take up something that would stir your affections for Christ that you don't normally or consistently do, and for 40 days say, hey, I'm going to do it. It's okay that we're a week and a half into Lent, or two weeks. I would encourage that. It's not too late to begin to participate. Uh, for many of you, let me just say this. One of the greatest things you could do this Lenten season, now till Easter, which is coming soon and say, you know what, I'm going to take a few minutes to get up earlier, whatever it takes, to have time in the morning that's devoted to the Lord. I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, I'm going to talk to the Lord and meditate on who He is and what relevance His Word has for my life. And oftentimes we'll start at the beginning of a year, we'll do a 365 um, uh, chronological Bible read or something great, but it's tough. Sometimes, sometimes by this point in the calendar into February, you're going, oh yeah, I had made a commitment to do that. This is a great chance to kind of re-up and say, yeah, I'm going to take a bite size for 40 days. I'm going to commune with Jesus in light of who he is and what he has done, and that this will be a worshipful time of deepening your devotion to Christ this Lenten season. So let me just give you that word of encouragement. All right, if you're able and you're with me, stand to your feet. First Peter, this morning's text is First Peter chapter 1, verses 22 Through 25, the Word of God reads this way Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of God for the people of God. The people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, thank you so much for your word that it's living and enduring. We're reminded of that explicitly in our text this morning, the living and enduring word of God. And yet that, that word is the good news preached to us. It's the gospel. The gospel is alive. Uh, through all all facets of your word, point to the eternal truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are a sovereign, holy God who has loved us enough to send your only begotten Son. Lord, I pray that as I preach today, you, Lord Jesus, would be exalted in this place, that you would increase, that I must decrease. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so um, As a runway into this text, just a little reminder, we are coming off this massive command, middle of chapter 1, therefore, uh, in Peter's quoting uh, Leviticus, God told the Israelites 150 plus times in Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. Just a big, massive statement. Now, we got a lot of the beautiful gospel-centered why as to that uh, a couple weeks ago in the sermon, that it wasn't merely about God wants His people to be well-behaved for our own welfare or to just tidy things up as if that's somehow glorifying. But literally, God has taken his character and he imputes it into us. In his character, he who is holy and he imprints his holiness in us, on us so that through us, he might be revealed to the world. We don't carve wooden statues and invite people into our home to introduce them to our gods. We are imprinted with the character of God By the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, who's ever conforming us into the image of Christ, so they might know us and see our God. So, this is a massive, beautiful, privileged stewardship of being a part of the fellowship of the redeemed. And he says, and by the way, that's hung on a therefore. The therefore was in light of the salvation that you have, which was obsessed over by the prophets, which was delighted in by the Holy Spirit, the entire anticipation of the Old Testament, he's always pointing to Christ, and which was longed for by the angels. What you have in Christ to be born again, regenerated, to be literally housed the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, inside your very being, to be in direct communion with God through a permanent mediator of the new covenant who is Jesus, our high priest, do you know what you've got? And Peter's going, in light of that, your stewardship, your privilege is to be altogether different than those around you in a pagan culture in a lost world. You're to be holy. Oftentimes when we think of holiness, we just can't help it. I, I, I don't know, it's, it's probably some cultural dysfunctional thing, but I generally think of some kind of legalism. Which is not at all, I hope we're redefining and reestablishing holiness over these last three weeks, including today, that that is not just this personal code of, of moral uprightness. That's not at all the center or the starting place or the foundation of holiness. That might be a fruit of holiness or a fruit of maturity. Uh, we hope that um, our lives are transformed, but they, they got to go from the inside out. We're not just trying to clean up. The outside, where Jesus might say to us, like He said to the Pharisees, "You're like whitewashed tombs. You got all the T's crossed and the I's dotted, but you're rotting inside." That is how holiness might look to somebody. So, so people think holiness is church attendance. They think it's uh, never cussing. What's the old Baptist saying? Don't cuss, drink, or chew, or date girls that do, <laughs> right? Uh, the world's not really impressed with that. It, it looks fake. It's a, it looks facade. It looks legalistic. Jesus wasn't impressed with that. Again, don't let any wholesome talk come out of your mouths, Ephesians 4.29. Would that be a fruit of mat- maturation in Christ and holiness? Absolutely. But holiness doesn't start there with an outward cleanse. It starts with an inward regeneration that pushes its way all the way through every fiber of our being and creates in us. It's a, it's a work. We're a new creation that's always being renewed towards newness. So understand, when we get into the Petrine theology here of salvation and sanctification, holiness is a central theme. That God has begun a good work in you, he's going to complete it. And that holiness begins somewhere from the moment of being saved, and it looks like something, and it's not what we, or at least I, normally think of when I think of holiness. So our text today is gonna unfold and unveil the mystery of holiness. Here's what holiness is. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. Now I gotta stop right there and just just acknowledge something. If that's all we had on an island, just those eight words or whatever, and no context, no rest of the verse, no rest of the chapter, no rest of our Bible, we'd be tempted to think we're saved by works. Having been purified, or having purified your souls by your obedience, that would sound like we did something to get saved. Well, understand Peter writing in the context of the verse, the chapter, the book, his ministry in the New Testament, and the entire Bible, what he's saying when he says obedience to the truth. What he's talking about is in alignment with what he says when he preaches in Acts. And he says, God commands men everywhere to repent. You're a sinner. Here's what's truth. You're a sinner. You cannot merit your own righteousness before God. You've been marred. You have been, uh, the wages of your sin are death, and you and I stand condemned before a holy God. It's true, and yet Jesus is holy. It's true. He's righteous, and He came, put on flesh, lived a life we could never live in adherence to the moral righteous requirement of the law that reveals the righteous requirement of the very character of God, he lived it. He's the only one that can because he's not born of the seed of Adam, virgin birth, lived that life, voluntarily took our place on a cross, died in our place and for our sin. This is truth. Rose from the dead on the third day, conquering sin, death, and the grave. Truth. What's your and my responsibility. God commands men everywhere, repent. If you obey the truth, that's to acknowledge your sinfulness, God's righteousness, his substitutionary atonement for you and I on the cross, repent of our sin, surrender our lives to him. That's obedience to the truth. You know what that also is? Salvation. That's regeneration. By grace, he earned it, not us, through faith. Soil of faith is where we receive the seed of the gospel and the new creation gives forth. You with me? So Petrine theology is you put your faith in Christ— And that is obeying the command of God. To be a non-believer is not merely to be disinterested in the things of God. It's to be disobedient. It's to be rebellious to all that is true. It's to, Romans 1, suppress the truth for your own fleshly carnal desires. Y'all with me? So he says, having purified your soul by obedience, which is by the reception, the understanding, which is spiritual illumination, that's given us by God, we've established that in chapter one, the receiving of the gospel, it being planted on our, our, the soil of faith in our hearts, creating in us a new creation. Let me give it to you as Titus says. Titus 3.5, make a note in your Bible. Titus 3.5 says, we are saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that an awesome verse? So what happened when you were saved? You were washed in regeneration. Washed by what? The blood of Christ. Because you received that which is true. He died for me. And you were renewed in the Holy Spirit. You are made into a new creation by the very power of God at work through the third person of the Trinity. So you've now been purified. You're purified in your soul by your obedience to the truth. For, now we have a reason we are purified. So this paragraph, or pericope in seminary terms, is uh, is, uh, just rich um, with um, application and, and in parallel to the context of Paul's writing in Romans 12. I can't read this paragraph and not just think Romans 12. They just mirror each other. And if you remember Romans 12, a very famous chapter in Scripture, Paul starts by saying, in view of God's mercy, so just in view of the fact that we aren't getting, that's what mercy is, you're not getting what you and I deserve. We're, we deserve death. We get life in and through Christ. He imputes his life to us. The righteous the, died for the unrighteous. We, who are sinful, become righteous by his righteousness. We don't get what we deserve. That's mercy. In view of his mercy, Paul says, Paul says, in view, if you really get your mind around God's mercy, there's, 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 it demands a response. In view of his mercy, he says, offering your lives is a living sacrifice like hop up on the altar and say, Lord, I'm yours. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is how you respond to what is true of the gospel. It doesn't demand a a part of your schedule. It doesn't demand 30 minutes every morning. It doesn't demand Sunday mornings. It demands your life. That's Paul, Romans 12. That's Peter, 1 Peter 1. Having been purified, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, Here's what it's to produce, a sincere love. A sincere love. The word sincere. In the Greek, it's hupokrites. Hupokrites. What word does that remind you of in the English language? Hupokrites, hypocrite. The idea is that there's a love that's meant to be a response to to being purified by the regenerating waters of the blood of Christ, that's to produce a necessary response of a love, not a shallow, cultural, fake facade of love, but of sincere, non-hypocritical love. Let me tell you more about that word, Hypocrites. it was used in a certain context. It meant play-acting. That's what it literally means, play-acting. In the first century B.C. and A.D., the, um, if you went to a play, they would have the masks, and the mask would have a face on it, the sad face, the happy face. That denoted the expression of the character that was being played. But the person would hide behind the mask. They would say their lines, which were memorized, behind a facade, behind a mask. And what hypocrites means is behind a mask. Well, the word, the exact word in Greek, he puts an alpha in front, an ah, hypocrites You are not to be like that. You are to do the opposite of play acting with people. You are not to say one thing and be something else. You are to be, what's the opposite of a hypocrite, you're to be authentic. What does holiness look like, Christian? It starts, Peter's not interested in your language yet, get there, chapter two, he's interested in you responding to the washing of regeneration with an authentic love for others. By the way, let me just make sure you know, this is in keeping with the entirety of Scripture. Hosea, God says through Hosea, um, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. God is less, we have an entire Old Testament built on a sacrificial system that is to merely train us and remind us that we are a sinful people in need of a holiness we don't have, pointing us forward to the substance of a Messiah to come in Christ not to actually save us, certainly not to make us self-righteous. God would, he desires mercy. He desires our hearts, compassion. Here's what Jesus would say out of 613 commandments. The first and greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the first and greatest commandment. Sorry, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. What does it look like to be godly? What does it look like to obey the entirety of the law? Starts with love. Not a fake, shallow, communicated love, a substantive, authentic love. A non-hypocritical love. Uh, Paul will say in Galatians that, that this is um, this is the end of the law, that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, James would say the same thing, that if you're, fulfill, you're fulfilling the royal commandment when you're loving your neighbor as yourself. John would say, if we profess to love God and we don't love our brother, then we're a liar. So understand the theology of your New Testament. They make it simple. Hosea, Paul, John, James, Peter, Jesus. How do you know someone's legit, born again, a Christ follower, saved, regenerated, a true Christian? You'll know them by their love. They'll love not with a mask. They'll love authentically. Now, I'm going to practically apply that in just a moment, but let me catch this next phrase. By the way, that's an adjective right there, that sincere, the adjective and then he moves into love one another. He's going to put an adverb on it, earnestly. He's going to just keep pressing in. Just to make sure you don't think that was a passing phrase or Paul is just writing, you know, uh, poetically. No, you were saved for a sincere brotherly love. That's how we're meant to love one another. Love one another earnestly. The word here is tenos, ek tenos. Tenos is to extend, or to stretch, ectinosis to extend to the end, to the uttermost, or to stretch all the way out. Uh, the The word here, the word picture here, in the context it was given, would have been of a race. It would have been runners. My favorite Olympic event, still to this day, is the hundred meter dash. Love it, love it. That's just those. That they're just these you know, physically sculpted athletes just wound up, a ball of muscle. They all crouch down. The gun goes off. Boom! They fire out. There's the short staccato wide steps coming into the elongated stride. And, you know, the taller guys like Usain Bolt start chewing up that track. And they come down to the end. And if you get, which now that he's retired, maybe we'll get some close races again. When you get towards that last five, eight yards... You see gold, metal, silver, and bronze. They're going to be separated by hundreds of a second. And you see these guys who are given it all, and now they fully extend themselves. They just stretch out to the tape, and they are laid out at the uttermost peak of what they can possibly give. The word in Greek is ektenos. That's what Peter says. Lest you glaze over, be authentic, He pushes you to the point of sacrifice. He pushes you to the point of being spent to your very end. What is holiness? I mean, wouldn't it be great if the culture thought this was, if the culture thought of the church and they thought of this. Those are the people who love us authentically and they love us sacrificially. It's like they've given their lives for the sake of their Lord and His gospel. That's what we know. We don't know much about those people, but we know that. We see it. All right, let me apply for a moment. We see it in their marriages. Now, I really wish the statistics backed up what theologically is true and what's meant to be real. They they don't much. They don't in an obvious set-apart way. But look, we can't, obviously, we can't love our neighbor well without loving our spouse well. Uh, I'm going to end today telling you where neighbors are going to extend all the way to because Jesus is clear with that. But I'll tell you where it starts. If you've become one in covenant marriage, that's where it begins. By the way, I know that's where it's hardest. I get it. It's sometimes it's easier to love your physical neighbor three doors down than it is to love your wife or your husband. I get that. Because you're two sinners living under the same roof, and that thing's just going to grind over time unless you have the grace of the gospel, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and a mutual focus on Christ, a Christ-centered marriage. We're, We're following Him. You're following Him. You're always growing closer together. Can't imagine being married apart from the grace of the Holy Spirit, sanctifying me and sanctifying my wife. That's why it's important to be equally yoked going into marriage with somebody who loves Jesus more than they love you. Look, I, the pastoral staff here, we do more time than anything else with marriage counseling. Again, it's understandable. A lot of married folks, marriage is not easy. But our common commitment, that's why we stand up there at a service and we make vows that are, that are pretty uh, crazy. Have you ever thought about what you said in your vows? I'm going to commit to loving you as Christ loved the church from now till the day I die. All right. really? All right, well, if you're in a tough spot in marriage, I want you to think about that. That's going to start with repentance and confession and a complete extending yourself to the end to authentically and sacrificially love someone, and it's worth it. It's worth it for the reputation of Christ, not to mention the fruit of joy that will come in a marriage where you're actually loving your wife like Christ loved the church. And she'll respond in kind. I'm going to submit to you in love and submit to you as the church submits to Christ. Usually it's two young people in love that don't even really know what they're saying. But we must live that out. It's the beginning, it's the first understanding of what holiness is. Love your neighbor, that's gonna start there. It's not, it's not, you don't skirt around that, and move to the next context, right there. Wouldn't it be awesome if the world said there's something altogether different about Christian marriages, Not that they're not human, not that they don't have tough spots, not that they don't have miscommunications and difficult and conflict resolution, but somehow their commitment to Christ reveals itself in a dogged, sacrificial, persevering, authentic love for one another that is so desirable. Wish I had what they had. What's the secret? Jesus. I need Jesus. That's how that's meant to work. Doesn't just end in in marriage. By the way, we are doing, we're doing. I'm doing a a marriage evening, April twenty ninth. If you're a a young married or a, a struggling married, that evening, April 29th, we're going to have a a night uh, where I'm going to talk, maybe ninety minutes or so, just on foundations and principles for building a healthy marriage. And then we're gonna have some mentor couples in our body who are making themselves available to walk with you through a season if, it's, if you're new and married or if you're struggling and married. So put that down um, if that applies. Um, by the way, okay, that's the first obvious context, but clearly it goes beyond that. We, we, we're, not, we're, we're to love earnestly, sacrificially and authentically, obviously, our marriages. But beyond that, he talks about a brotherly love. He talks about the fam- your spiritual family. Let, let, me, let me say something. I told you this mirrors Romans 12. You know what he says in Romans 12? Right after he says, the gospel demands your life. The very next thing he says is not go to the ends of the earth and be an evangelist. The very next thing he says is find out what your gift is and serve in your local spiritual family. That's Romans 12. Read it, three through eight. And then he c- culminates in verse nine with, let your love be genuine. Same word, let it be authentic. Like, don't just smile at the people in here and give a lot of how you doings and never actually get extended. Never get past the mask. Never get to where you're Well, how are you supposed to do that in a large church with 1,600 members? Well, there's always been the danger of being a large church. Let me say this, some people go to a church that's large so they can be lost in it so they don't ever have to live out the gospel. Please, please don't do that. That would be the most tragic thing that you could do. I always talk about getting you in a group beyond Sunday morning, getting in a small group, and I always talk about it in terms of your spiritual welfare. That's almost always the application. You need this. Satan wants to get you isolated. You need community in your life for your own maturation. We're to present every man mature in Christ. This is essential. True, but Peter flips it. He says, you got to do that so you can love others like Christ has loved you. you got to do it because you're a Christ follower, and you know how we're known to the world? You know how we display to the world who He is? We love the brethren, sacrificially and authentically, which means you had better be getting to know some of your spiritual family. It's not just about Sunday morning, come, hear a good message, be fed, grow. You can't grow apart from uh, practicing this dynamic with your spouse, with your spiritual family, and we'll move out in just a moment. Uh, It's Girl Scout cookie season. I know some of y'all know because I just came out of the little back room and those two boxes of Girl Scout cookies, so I'm not the only one. Um, I got word from a friend who is a bona fide friend and hero of mine. It's one of those things where one of your best friends gets to be your heroes, but Lieutenant Colonel Nathan Monk, I've talked about him, given multiple illustrations of him, uh, went to Germantown High School, of Germantown. Grew up with him, went to West Point. He's served the last 25 years in the military. He's an army ranger, battalion commander, has been on multiple tours, tours of duty, highly decorated. He's just an unbelievable man. And uh, I look up to him so much. I love him. I learn a lot from him. Well, he was the one that emailed me, said, hey, my girls, he's got two girls. They're delightful. He said, would you be up for buying some Girl Scout cookies? The money's going to go to support the troops, some of the um, troop-specific battalions that I was involved with. And, um, you know, the girls get to work on their people skills. They hand deliver them, yada, yada. Of course, I'm going to buy the Girl Scout cookies. And so uh, we do, and uh, yesterday was the delivery day, and I was excited. And it was supposed to be more about, I think, these girls practicing some of their skills, they're learning, but for me, I was fired up. I mean, this is a man I've told stories around the dinner table to my boys uh, for years. This is a man who the American flag, which he carried on his last tour of duty where he was shot and wounded and received a silver star and got all of his men out of there, um, and, and after they successfully accomplished their mission, hangs in my office presently. So my boys know about, and this was the day most of them had never met him before. This was going to be the day where they were going to meet him. So I was so fired up, and door opens, and the little girls are giving their presentation, just doing a fabulous job. My boys are just staring at Lieutenant Colonel Nate. And we talked about, hey, you make this the most firm handshake you've ever given a man, all right, and you look him right in the eye, and you thank him for his service. And every one of them did, and he pulled them tight and told him how it was his honor to serve, and it was really special. Well, I've talked to Nathan in the past about this, and conversed with him again, uh, even this morning, uh, about this principle. I said, Nate, when the, when you get to, I mean, this guy's been through the nth degree of, of, uh, what human excellence looks like and how you prepare and train people for something. And I said, Nate, tell me about that. When you are training, um, I look at the systems that we have in the church and in schools and everything else. It, it's generally, we learn by receiving content. How do you learn in the army? How do you learn in the military? Like, what would it look like if I went to boot camp? Many of y'all have been there. He says, well, it's not going to be a lot of lecturing. You don't go for nine weeks or nine months of lecture training. What you do is they introduce to you small concepts, and then he says they put you in small groups where you train together together with guys that you're bonded, you've taken an oath, I'm gonna die for this guy, if, if, uh, if the bullets are flying, I'll, I'll do it, and he's gonna die for me. He said, you have a specific buddy, one person, that you never leave their side, even when you go to the bathroom, you gotta go with them, your battle buddy. And then you're gonna have a small group that you are committed to the death to, and you practice the small concept introduced to you uh, uh, communicatively in a classroom setting, and now you go out, and in a small group, you live it out, and you train, and you practice until it becomes second nature. Now it's, it's infused into your character by the force of habit. It's who you are. Do you know what one of the most prominent illustrations in the New Testament of a Christian is? We're meant to be Soldiers. For Christ. We're meant to take these things and now these principles of holiness, which starts with love, authentic sacrificial love, and we now get in small groups where we practice them until it literally forms in us a more loving, sacrificial, authentic, loving nature. It's defining who we are to an ever-increasing degree. It's changing us. The Holy Spirit's changing us by the practice of this principle in a small group of committed believers who will lay down their lives for one another. We're becoming soldiers. The world looks at that. You look at Nate's battalion and you would go, wow, I, I don't really see authentic sacrificial love like that ever. Do you guys know that's what's meant to be true of the church? That's us. We're meant to be the display, the ultimate display, even above the military. They got a great cause. We have the greatest cause, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're meant to be the preeminent example to the world of what love looks like. This is why Jesus, by the way, did not launch a worldwide gospel movement through a preaching tour. Has there ever been a better preacher than Jesus? Say no. No way. No, but he didn't didn't do that. He didn't even even tell the guys he called to meet me on the synagogues on Saturday mornings and in three years y'all will be ready. You know what he said? Two words, follow me. Let's go, we gotta do life together. That is where you practice the dynamic of holiness. Of course, they experience it, they see it in Christ, they experience it with him, and they're practicing with each other. He's transforming them so to the point where he will say to them at the Great Commission, you now go and make disciples. We know what that meant. Don't have some great preaching ministry. Have a great discipleship ministry. Every Christian's called into that. That doesn't happen in Sunday morning alone. So yeah, we're hitting a lot of the practicals this morning. Marriages, small groups. And the, by the way, a little over half our members are in small groups. Most pastors I talk to, they go, that's unbelievable. We got like 10%. I don't, I don't look at half as unbelievable. Because the standard is, this is what a Christian does. So it concerns me, if you're not in any kind of small or group environment outside of Sunday morning, I'm concerned for your welfare and for your understanding of what it means to follow Christ. It's not lived out in a silo. It's not a personal holiness code. You're supposed to be loving the brethren. Authentically, that means you know them. Sacrificially, you know their needs. All right, I'd be remiss to not just go ahead and say this too. I always say it in the announcements, maybe I'll carry a little more weight right now. I'll tell you a need we've got as a body. Y'all might have heard me mention this every Sunday. We have a need in child care. And this is not, uh, this is true, you know, in our preschool ministry. Um, we have a need for our members to serve one hour a month. You still go to service that, that week, but you just stay second hour and you serve an hour once a month. Now, I want to tell you a secret. I've never told this part before. We desperately need this. We need our members to say, I'm willing to extend myself, not my comfort zone, not where I'd maybe love to serve. By the way, we're not going to, you're not just thrown in there and said, good luck. I mean, we have, we have teachers that are there every week that lead a curriculum and know what they're doing. You're just helping hands. You're a volunteer. You're helping with distractions or anything that happens that, you know, we need somebody else around for. So the truth is this, if all of our members, if all of our members participated in this, you would actually serve, we'd need you to serve twice a year. But the reason we ask you to serve once a month is why? We know most of you aren't going to do it. Well, I was convicted by this. I was like, why is that okay? Like, we're a spiritual family When we got a need at home, Catherine and I are always preaching this to our boys. We have a need here, fellas. It's not just mom that does everything. And and by the way, don't wait till we tell you. If you see the need, that's what I tell them is manhood. You see the need and you willingly and voluntarily sacrifice your other agenda for the sake of the family. Step up, get in there, serve. You're part of the family. Well... How is that any different with us? We're a spiritual family. We got a need. And the truth is, if everybody ran to the need, twice a year. That's what we need. That's what we legitimately need from everybody. Uh, I was asking my wife, I was trying to think about this, obviously, could be illustrated very well. What does authentic sacrificial love really look like? And uh, all I could think of this morning, as I meander, uh, pondered that, trying to think of a good illustration, all I could think of was old Dan and little Ann from where the red fern grows. And I was like, you know, I need to give him a human illustration. And so uh, Catherine was walking by right then, and I said, hey, babe, what, uh, when you think of authentic sacrificial love in a way of illustration, what comes to mind? And she said, Tony Stark, Iron Man. I was like, what? That is not at all what I expected you to say clearly a uh, boy mom. And she's like, yeah, you know, Tony Stark, end game, like when he gets all the jewels from Thanos and he snaps his finger at his own death to save the world and provide a place for his daughter to grow up that's altogether different and better than even if he had spared his own life with her. I was like, okay, okay. I just was kind of thinking you'd say something a little softer, you know. And she's like, Okay, well it's a wonderful life. George Bailey, all he wants to do is get out of Bedford Falls. And yet he puts all of his dream that's all he wants to do. He's the world adventurer spirit. He puts all why? His brother. His brother's got an opportunity to go to college. He'll sacrifice and wait and, and hone down on the family business, and his brother's going to get a chance to live out his dreams. And then his brother's done, and now it's his family. Then his family's done, now it's the town, so it doesn't become a potter's show. And all of his life, he just keeps denying himself and loving sacrificially and authentically. And she said, or what about Jack and Rose? Is it Jack? Titanic? Is that right? That's her movie. She says, you know, there's one iceberg One piece of ice. They both can't fit on it. And so he's not trying to get on there with her and it's going down. So he slides off and he says, you go live. You're going to have a life rich, full of love and children and a family and a legacy. And I willingly, the greatest way I can demonstrate my love is to provide that to you at my own expense. You know, most movies that tug at your heart have an expression of sincere, authentic love. And here's why, underneath the undergirding theme of any really good epic movie is the gospel. It's a sacrificial love where someone lays down a life for someone else to have a life that they don't otherwise, aren't gonna otherwise have or don't deserve. Which at the end of the day, tugs on our heart because we're created in the image of God and we're separated from fellowship with him. And there's a redemptive story at play where God has literally come in flesh and He has given His life that we may have that which we wouldn't otherwise have, eternal life now and forever in Him. And we are searching for meaning in this world under the sun and apart from God, we can't find it. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we see it in a movie and it tugs and we're like, oh, I want that. Every single one of those movies, illustrations, is merely a taste, a shadow of what is substantially all-fulfilling and eternally true in the Gospel. Peter says, you are to live out this love story. You've first been loved, now show the world what that looks like. Cancel every other agenda that's an idol over this, and let this be the agenda of your life. And here's why. Since, we get a clause of why to finish it, since you have been born again. That's why. Yours is salvation. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. When you're born in a family, you take on a familial Look, you look like your dad or maybe if you're lucky, your mom. You know, you you, you grow in and the, there's something with that perishable seed that's true. Your parents aged. You know, you thought you'd never look like them. And then all of a sudden you start looking like them. And you're aging and you're experiencing the effects of the perishable seed of sin. And you're aging and physically things are deteriorating and you're growing older and tired. And then just as you're grandparents and your parents died. You're physically going to die. It's a perishable seed. He'll say, he'll contrast this with an imperishable seed, which is your spiritual family, that you were born of a spiritual seed. The gospel seed, fertile soil of faith, new creation, which is you. Here's why it's altogether different. All flesh is like grass. Well, it's altogether different because it's through the living and abiding word of God. By the way, he'll define that as the gospel. This is the good news preached to you. So the gospel you're born again through the gospel of Jesus Christ, receiving it by faith. And look, all flesh is like grass, and it's glory like the flower of the grass. The best you can ever do is have a really pretty bloom. You know, you're working up to it in your 20s, you're trying to get your body in shape, you're trying to look good, feel good, climbing corporate ladder, whatever it is, being the best version of yourself and everything. Things are just kind of, and then at some point, you kind of peak. And we're always trying to push the peak. You know, Tom Brady's telling us you can peak later. And we're trying to push it. But at some point, guess what? I think it was the uh, great cultural theologian, LeBron James, that said, um, Father, time is undefeated. That at some point, you're going to peak. And we call it being over the hill. Then you're going to start fighting atrophy. The best you can do with your perishable seed is have a bloom for springtime. It blooms, and everybody goes, wow, and then it's gone. But that's altogether different than the imperishable seed, which has been planted in your heart when the gospel took root in the soil of faith. And now there's something living. It's divine. It's imperishable. It'll never fade. It'll never die. It's just like the very word of God itself. It's eternal, and it's true. And guess what you're meant to do? Look like your father who is in heaven. Bear a growing family resemblance through maturity all the way. It never, you don't go over hill and back down. You just grow and sanctify and mature until you meet him face to face. Amen? And it's an eternal, there's a, look, Christ conquered the grave. Conquered sin, death, and the grave. He resurrected as the first fruits. You and I, there is a resurrection coming Why would I give my life, extending myself sincerely and sacrificially in love for others? Because you were born again. And you now resemble a heavenly father far more than you resemble your earthly father. And that completely capitulates and changes and transforms the way you will live your days on this earth. Not merely a flower that blooms and dies. You are now a part of a grand redemptive story and you're ever increasing, to an ever increasing degree, displaying the holiness of God to a lost pagan world. Well, to what end? Let me finish with this. To what end? Starts with your wife, your husband, and your family, and your, your, your marriage. Maybe in your roommate, with your roommate if you're not married yet. Not with your dog, it's got to be a Human. It starts there, and then it goes to uh, the brethren. That's what the Bible says. You got, you If you can't love God's people, that's problematic. It's not just problematic for you. It doesn't just reek of immaturity. It drags the name of Christ and the gospel through the mud. So it starts there. And then at the end of the day, who is my neighbor? You know, one of the most famous stories in your New Testament is in Luke 10, a, a scribe comes to Jesus and he says, What must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, uh, What does the law say? And the guy quotes Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself, which is true. And Jesus says something very convicting. He says, Do that and you'll live. Hey, anybody here want to have to love God perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly in order to earn your salvation before God? Any takers? Heck no. This was a great invitation. This was a subtle altar call. The guy should have said, I can't do that. Nobody can do that. And Jesus could have said, precisely, repent and believe on me. I'll pay the price for your sin. But he didn't. He says he wanted to justify himself. That's the problem with man. And in so doing, he said, who's my neighbor? Like, where's the bar that I got to jump over to be saved? And Jesus says, all right. There's a story about a man who traveled in Jerusalem to Jericho and he uh, falls in the hands of robbers. He's beaten, left half dead. Priest comes, passes him by. Levite comes, passes him by. Ain't looking good for our, our guy. And then here comes a Samaritan, an enemy of the Jew. He comes and it says he saw the man and he felt something. splagnitzomai his heart broke open in compassion for this man. He stopped. He tore his tunic, put it on this man. He treated his wounds with oil and wine. He put him on his own donkey. He took him to an inn. He paid for him to be taken care of. He even said, stay till the next day. This is called interrupting your entire life. He's into his time. He's into his money. And he says, I'm going to leave, but when I come back, I'm going to give you a blank check. I'll pay off everything that's owed from an enemy. And Jesus says, let me ask you a question. You tell me who the neighbor is. Can I tell you what Jesus just spoke into? This is Jesus. And here's what he said. In case you're wondering who's your neighbor or what it means to love, here's a story. Your neighbor is anyone in need. And to love them is authentically and sacrificially. And that story houses in it the grand why of it all. And it's this. When you read that story, I hope you're able to see that this isn't merely just about some fictional characters. It's about the true story of you, and you're not the Samaritan. You and I are the dead guy on the side of the road. Do you know what's true for you and I if we're in the family of God? There's an ultimate good Samaritan who saw us and was moved who came and was stripped naked and beaten and persecuted so we could be clothed in righteousness, who gave to the extent of his own blood so that we might be washed in it and purified in our soul, who paid for our debts, who redeemed us with his life and his death, and who has declared that he will come back and finish what he has started in every one of us. Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. And even though the story didn't hold it, you can imagine if the guy had woken up and looked around and he was, thought he was dead and all of a sudden he's cared for it and he's saying, hey, who did this for me? And the innkeeper would have said what? Well, it was your enemy, formerly, but he just sacrificed everything for you. And you'd be saying, where is he? Well, he's gone away, but he said he's coming back. He's going to finish what he started here. And you know what you'd be thinking right there? How in the world do I pay back the man who saved my life? And Jesus does say the last sentence in that story, he tells the hearers and the man who asked the question, he says, you go and you do likewise. You and I are to extend ourselves sincerely and earnestly because we've been born again, because he has first loved us. Father, I pray that we would be a people who are, know what it is to love. But we can't love in a silo. We can't just live our lives in a pandemic and isolation and work from home and put food on the table and go about our business. Lord, there's, you've called us to love in the context of our homes and families, roommates. You've con- called us to love in the context of our spiritual family, your body, the body of Christ. You've called us to love even in the context of the, the stranger in need that we don't even know anything about. And we would be radical in the way we love. Oh, I yearn. I I yearn for the church to be known by its love. Lord, let it be true of Harvest Church, that we're all together consecrated. We're separate. We're holy because of the way we love. That that would be our testimony in this community. And Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified in it. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.